Okay, good morning. Thank you, Ellen, for leading us in prayer. That was awesome. Um, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to start there this morning as we talk about Palm Sunday and, and uh, look at a couple of the events that happened uh, as Jesus came into Jerusalem and the importance that, that that had in history in the Christian faith, but more importantly, how these events and what happened uh, with the people, with Jesus, with all that went on, uh, are making things that are practically applicable to our lives today as we uh, come in. It's not just about celebrating Palm Sunday, but it's about seeing what happened and the message that Jesus has for us in Palm Sunday and applying that to our lives that we go forth to change people when we leave. So Mark chapter 11 is where we'll be, and we will start with verse 1 and read through verse 11. It states this, as they approached Jerusalem, that's Jesus and his disciples, at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he, Jesus, sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it back here. The disciples went away and found the colt tied at the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, What are you doing untying this colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and the people gave them permission. And they brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and Jesus sat on it. And many spread their coats on the road, and others spread leafy branches which they had cut from the fields. Those who went in front and those who followed were, sent, were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple, and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. Let's stop there. It's kind of a unique story, isn't it? When you look at it, it's like, well, what does this kind of fit in the Bible? But there's really a lot in there. And we talk about Palm Sunday, and I heard a story about a little boy who happened to be sick on Palm Sunday. And so he stayed at home uh, from church with his mother. And, you know, his dad and his brothers and them came back after church, and they were holding little strands of palm branches and the little boy uh, doesn't remember seeing that before, and so he asked his dad, he goes, Dad, what, what are those little leafy palm branches you've got? And his dad explained to the son, he said, Son, you see, when Jesus came into town, everybody waved palm branches to honor him, so we got palm branches today. And the little boy looked up and shook his head. He's like, oh, shucks. The one Sunday I miss church and Jesus shows up. <laughs> but I'm bummed. Well, we are celebrating Palm Sunday, for, again, for many reasons, uh, for what Jesus did, for the tumultuous week of what went on, um, but also for the practical application of some of the stories that surround that time as we lead up to Easter next week and celebrate Resurrection Sunday of Jesus um, rising from the dead. Um, we remember Palm Sunday because it was the week towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, pretty much the last week, I, I think about that, I'm like, what would it be like to know that this was your last week on earth, and you're still leading, you're still doing ministry, you're still 
driving the gospel message forward. I mean, it had to be such a strange thing. Jesus will enter Jerusalem, as we'll read in our story today. He comes into this hustling, bustling crowd of a city just packed completely over with people celebrating the Passover um, from when God released the people from Egypt and they put the blood on the doorpost and, and uh, uh, he saved their firstborn and brought them out into freedom from slavery. Uh, we celebrate in this week that Jesus was also brought in and un, or ashamedly convicted of being a criminal and, and uh, he is backstabbed and countercrossed to the point that he is beaten and eventually crucified and hung on a cross. Pretty bad. And I think about being a non-Christian and looking at this week as we celebrate this week of like, what are you people thinking? I mean, here is your savior and he's crucified, he's beaten, he's hung on a cross mercilessly, mercil mercilessly, I can't even say that, hung on a cross horribly. And this is what you're celebrating. This is what you're leading up to Easter what gives? I mean, it has to be such an odd thing if you don't understand the importance of this week and what's going on as it leads up to Jesus giving us the opportunity to have salvation in him, to have eternal life, that he had to go through this week to overcome and to fulfill all the prophecies that had been laid down about him to prove that he truly not only was, but still is the Messiah and the Savior, the Son of the living God. This is week, you know, when, I, when I try and picture it and think about it, it's like today, this Palm Sunday that we celebrate in kind of an imagery type of way is kind of like the, the beautiful dancing light of a sunset. Now you've seen that, you know, it, you see that sunset with kind of the red and orange and beautiful haze and it's going down and the light is just kind of there and it's, it's vibrant as Jesus enters Jerusalem. But then what happens after sunset? It goes dark. Just dark in the dead of night. And that darkness overcomes everything. And if you're like many kids, sometimes we're scared of the dark, right? The dark is not a fun thing. You Things go bump in the night and you bump into things because you can't see them. There's no light to shine in the darkness. But then as we celebrate, as we get through this week of somewhat darkness, we come to Easter morning as the sun dawns on the horizon again. And I love the few times I do get up to see the sunrise. You see it, and before the sun even peaks over the horizon, what happens? Its rays radiate out, and you know something good is coming. If it's a cold, brisk morning, you know when that sun comes up and hits you with those rays, you feel the warmth of that light and it changes everything and the darkness is gone. That's kind of like what this week is like in what we call and celebrate as Holy Week in Christendom. It's the sunset and then the dark and finally, seven days later, the sun rides. Now, if you were one of the disciples at this time following Jesus, as we read, you know they're kind of following around with him as he's zigzagging from city to city. Um, it would be an odd time because it would almost be like the show is about to begin, right? You've been with Jesus two, maybe three years. You've seen him do the miracles. You've seen all the things happen. And now you're going to Jerusalem to the Passover. And this is a massive celebration. 
And if you're one of the disciples, I would be thinking, this is where it happens. This is where it all comes together, and the ministry is proclaimed, and this is where, I mean, we really bring forward, and the people follow Jesus, and it's going to be magical and great, and it's going to be good. And even though the disciples know that the scribes and Pharisees and the zealots and the religious, religious leaders have been against Jesus, they know that his ministry is growing, the crowds are growing, and again, this could be the dawning of the show. This could be where everything comes together and happens. So they arrive in Jerusalem on the last day possible to really celebrate the full celebration of Passover. Now picture the scene. The place in Jerusalem is packed. This is not like normal Jerusalem, like daily life of, you know, getting up and the women go out to the well to get the water and you go out and you find something to bring in to cook with and you, you find meal and you barter, you trade, you work, you take care of things. The city is filled with people that have come in from everywhere. I mean, you've got your elite coming in, possibly with their camels and all this other stuff, and their, their donkeys and horses. You've got the poor and the impoverished coming in from working in the, in the fields and watching over the sheep. This whole group is coming into the city, and the city is just bursting. Some uh, historians think that at this time in this small town of Jerusalem, which is not like Jerusalem today, there could have been 110,000 people. Now, that doesn't sound like much, but let's say you had 40,000 people to start with and you almost triple that. That's a lot of people. And the noise is going on. I mean, you got to put yourself back in this time. Everyone is bringing with them their family, their animals. It's just the, the sounds and the smells in the city had to be deafening and overpowering. I mean, we talk about allergy season now. You've got all kinds of animals, and you know what animals do. They're not necessarily potty trained. They just go where they got to go. You have all these smells. You have the smells of food. It's just this massive sea of humanity overtaking this, this city. And I tried to picture what this looked like. And I don't know um, when the last time was you were at Lagoon, but say it's bounce back day right you know that it's bounce back day and they limit the time that you can use that ticket to go to lagoon on bounce back day and who shows up to lagoon on that day everybody from the entire summer season shows up on bounce back day because they get half off or whatever so you walk in lagoon is just filled with a mass of people Everything is expensive, whether you want to coke or snowball or play a game. Everything's expensive. The lines are super long. You wait for an hour or two, and everyone is carrying something as they walk around. You know, they've got their food, their water, their snacks for the kids, their, their diaper bags, their strollers, their, their cooking stuff. I mean, everything is going on, and while you're in there, all the vendors are out in Lagoon trying to sell you something, trying to get you to play a game. I mean, it's just this mass chaos as you're, you're walking through the crowd, shoulder to shoulder, and you're really not having a good time, right? It's not like the other days. It's packed. It's jam-packed. There's people everywhere. There's, you have to wait for everything. You're packed on the rides. It's just, it's just not necessarily a lot of fun. Well, that's what this was like. Passover was just packed fat, full with the festival of the week because generations before, the Passover had begun. Remember that point in Egypt, you know, where, where Moses comes in and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says what? Absolutely not. And the plagues come in of God and, and uh, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. 
And finally, the last plague is there where God says, if you don't let my people go, the firstborn of every family and every flock will die. And God instructs through Moses for the people to take the blood of the lamb and to, to wipe that on their doorpost as an obvious sign that if you do this, you are adamantly for God, which meant that if God didn't come through the next day, you were probably going to be dead. Because you marked your doorpost that says, I believe in God adamantly to the point that I will go against the Egyptian government and not follow them. So this was a huge time for them. And God comes through, the Egyptians wake up, and it is horror. As the final plague has hit them, because all the firstborn of the family and the flock have died, but God's people, their firstborn has not. And then God triumphantly leads them out as the spirit of death has passed over the people of God and skipped them. So all these people come in to celebrate this time as God has commanded them and reminded them to celebrate this again and again and again to remember the greatness of what God has done. In symbol, symbolism, it's like what we celebrate in communion, isn't it? God says to do this in remembrance of me so that we remember that we don't lose sight of the big picture of our faith and our salvation of our purpose in God of God's will in our lives and in our church because I don't know about you but when there's so many distractions in life so many shiny things squirrel objects all this kind of stuff it's easy to lose focus isn't it it's easy to get distracted and not remember the goodness of God not remember the greatness of God, not remember the power of God and the power of God in us through salvation. When we have all the stuff going on in family and home and finances and kids and cats and dogs and whatever it may be, the weather, the house breaking apart, you know, whatever is going on, it's so easy to get distracted and not remember that God is the center of our life. And our universe revolves around him. And that he will have the Passover and get us through this just like he did those early men and women of God coming out of Egypt. And so God calls them to remember and they come together in hordes to gather and remember. Now, if you were a country folk, you would have brought in your own sacrifice, right? Because you know, at the culmination of this Passover, there has to be the animal sacrifice to get you through basically the next year to cover you, you and your family's sins. So if you were good country folk, you would find the best of your flock and you would do what? Bring it with you to bring to the temple on the last day to offer that sacrifice to God in place of your sin to cover you. Now, that sounds good, but again, picture the scene. This small city and its boundary walls have just blossomed three to four times as many people as are normally in there. It's kind of like the Christmas story. There's no room at the end because every place is full. So I imagine people are sleeping outside the city. People are sleeping in the streets in the city, trying to be there for everything. And with them are all their offerings, whether they're doves or a sheep or whatever it may be, all these animals are filling the place. And suddenly the outside barn is the smell of the inner city, right? 
mingled in with all the food vendors and everything else that's going on. And if you were not country folk, you had to come in and go to the synagogue officials and you had to buy your sacrifice. Now many of the Jews would buy them when they first came in on the beginning of the week because the idea, the simple concept was you would keep this sacrifice with you throughout the week. It would kind of become family with you. You would take it with you every day where you were ever going. And the, the, the symbolism was that as you carried this sacrificial lamb or dove or whatever it was with you and treated it like family, that somehow like through osmosis and just familiarity, your sins would transfer to the animal so that when it was sacrificed and the blood was shed, that would cover your sins for the year. Because on Friday, the lambs would be taken to the temple and slaughtered in that blood offering in keeping the feast of what God had done. Remember back in Egypt, God said to sacrifice the lamb and to do what with its blood? To mark the doorpost that you stand for God. And so the sacrifices were given in hope of God's continuing mercy to be upon you and your family. In the midst of all this, Santa Claus isn't coming to town, but guess who is? Jesus has come to town and he comes in just in time to have the celebration and to enter this Holy Week. But before he gets into town, he does something really, in my mind, strange, as we read in Mark chapter 11. He looks to two of his disciples who are at this point unnamed, and he says, go into the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, what are you doing with this? Tell him the Lord has need of it and send it back quickly. So the picture is just maybe, I'm guessing, one, two miles outside of Jerusalem. Jesus stops. Now he's been traveling around. We read that he's been going zigzagging through the various cities and doing ministry and preaching the gospel. And now he stops and he says, hey, you and you, I want you to go in town and I want you to get the colt of a donkey. Does that seem kind of odd to you? I mean, he's been traveling all the time. He just stops within a few miles and he says, suddenly I need a ride. He's been walking this whole time. So the two disciples are sitting there and they're told to go into town and not ask if they can get a donkey, but what? You just go in town, find it, it's gonna be sitting there. You just start untying it, right? There's no, hey, can I borrow your donkey? It's like, you just start untying it like you own the thing. And then he tells them what to do. In essence, this is kind of like me telling Kino, Kino, we got this big thing going on. I want you to go down to Larry H. Miller. There's this brand new Chevy or Ford 250. It's got the keys inside. It's loaded. It's decked out. It's unlocked. I just want you to walk down to the parking lot, get in the cab, and drive that baby over here. Right. Right. Well, that's kind of what's going on here, isn't it? I mean, at this time, you got to remember... Similar to Kennel going down and get the Ford F-250 and just driving it off the parking lot and saying, hey, the pastor has need of it, right? Horse stealing was a big issue, right? It was punishable by death. It was a bad thing. And Jesus just tells these two disciples, go in and get this colt. Don't ask questions. 
Just go get it. It's going to be sitting here. Untie it and bring it here. Well, that's kind of an odd thing. The other thing is, I don't recall many times in the New Testament that Jesus ever really needed anything. Do you? I remember the time where he asked the woman at the well for a drink of water. I know he uh, borrows a tomb for the weekend, but I don't remember Jesus saying, hey, I need something. Do you? But here Jesus says, I want you to go in to get this colt because I need this colt. I mean, let's kind of backtrack on the story a little bit. I mean, who is Jesus? Is he still the Son of God? Wouldn't it be easier for him just to say, Father, I need a ride. Dad, just boom, make a colt appear. Remember, you know, he walks by the, the fig tree the one time and he curses it because there's no food on it. Couldn't Jesus just say, Dad, just around the bend there when we walk in the town, just make a little, a little colt appear. Well, that'd be cool, right? Just suddenly it's there. Couldn't he even look at one of the disciples and kind of like the, the fairy tales, like, you know, Cinderella and just say, Boom, Richard, I'm going to make you a colt for a day. <laughs> That'd be impressive, right? Change Richard in this cute little colt, you know, going, right? And then suddenly write him in and then take him when he's done and say, poof, you're back to being a man again. Wouldn't that be astounding? I mean, this is the Son of God, right? He could call angels down. He could make water into wine. He could feed 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and a few fish. Wouldn't that be cool? But it's not what happened. Jesus tells the two unnamed disciples, go in, grab this little horse, this little donkey that's not yours. Don't ask questions. Just untie it and bring it back here because I need a ride. Well, we know that the real reason Jesus needed this was why. Do you remember? To fulfill a prophecy. Back in Zechariah 9, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. And now we know some of this happens because we read in Mark, right? What do the people start shouting? Hosanna, Hosanna. And then Zechariah 9, the second half says this, See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So hundreds of years before, Zechariah gives this prophecy to those who are paying attention saying, your king, your Messiah is going to come in and he's going to bring righteousness and he's going to have salvation. And he's going to come in riding on a colt. This obscure little prophecy of the prophet Zechariah. And here is Jesus about to enter Jerusalem with the Passover at the end of his earthly ministry. And he has to fulfill the prophecy. You see, God hasn't forgotten that he's God. God hasn't forgotten that he keeps his word. Even through hundreds of years. Now, I don't know about you, but as I get older, I find it hard to remember things from day to day. Sometimes even hour to hour, minute to minute, right? It's like, what, what were we doing? What, you know, in fact, we came home from uh, Kanab this last week, and I forgot to turn off, so we took a new way home. It was kind of exciting. Actually, it was pretty boring. Christy slept, and I looked at the landscape. But here God is saying, I don't forget. 
and I keep my promises to you, I am the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And if I promise you something, no matter how long, no matter what you go through, I will keep my word. Now that's pretty cool, isn't it? So has God promised you salvation? Has God promised you that he goes to prepare a place for you? Has Jesus promised you that there will be a moment when he will return for you and I? Now in that time, we may live for a couple decades, right? We may go through ups and downs. We may go through pandemics. We may go through earthquakes. We may go through bankruptcy. We may go through multiple jobs. We may go through whatever it is. We may go through puppies. And we may get sidetracked. And we may forget. And we may lose sight of that hope and the promise of God and his salvation and his power in us. But God does not forget. To me, that is ultimately reassuring, isn't it? That God will still come through, even though it doesn't look like that's what's going on. The other aspect of this that I think is really cool, that's so subtle. He doesn't ask his father just to make a donkey, a little colt, show up around the bend, does he? He doesn't take one of his disciples, like the fairy tales, and turn them in to a colt that he can ride. He doesn't just magically wave his hand and poof, there's a little colt. He looks to two disciples and he says, this is what I want you to do. Now that doesn't seem like much, does it? But again, who is Jesus? He's God. He can do anything he wants to. And yet, not only does he command these two disciples to do something crazy, in essence, what Jesus says is, I need you to do something for me. Isn't that kind of what he's saying? The beautiful thing that lies in this subtle telling of the disciples to go and get a cult is this. God wants you and I to participate in his kingdom. God looks at you and I and says, I want you to do this. Whether it's to bear a burden, whether it's to present the gospel message, whether it's to be faithful, whether it's to forgive. God wants willing participants to participate in his kingdom work. Does he need us? No, but he gives us the honor to say, I want you to be part of the plan, part of the ministry, part of the future. So I'm going to ask you to do this. Two disciples get asked to go in an untied colt, get a brand new send Keno out for that Ford F-250 with the keys in it, just drive it off a of Larry H. Miller parking lot. No questions asked, nothing done, right? No paper signed. It's a very odd request. And in fact, you notice that Jesus doesn't tell the two disciples, hey, when you get there and you see the colt, say, hey, can I borrow this for a little bit? What does he say? You just start untying it and bring it here. If anybody says anything, here's what you say. Jesus wants you and I to participate 
in his coming kingdom. In the preparation for that, in the sharing of the gospel message. In the Matthew, we know the Great Commission, which is what? Go out into all the ends of the earth, make disciples and baptize them. You go, you be. In fact, in the Bible, it's you do. That we are not hearers of the gospel only, but we are what? Doers of the gospel. What a great privilege that God takes notice of you and I, like these two disciples, and says, I want you to be a part of this. Now that doesn't seem like much on the onset, but when you were a kid, maybe now, have you ever been part of like a, a winning team? Or ever been part of a, a company or a business that's going great? Or a family that's prospering at a certain point in time? Isn't it fun to be part of that? To be included? Isn't it fun to be able to say, hey, this great ha thing happened, we got this trophy, we did this, whatever it was, we achieved this goal, and I was part of it? Doesn't that kind of make you a little excited to be able to say, I was there, you know? Think of these two disciples, if they happen to remember the prophecy out of Zechariah, I was there when he fulfilled the prophecy. I saw it, I got to be part of it, I got to bring the colt. Woo, I'm gonna get me a shirt. Woo, I was there. And Jesus, in essence, is looking at you and I. And we're like the two disciples, and he says, I want you to be there when this happens. I want you to participate and have the shirt that says, I was there when. Now, we don't always know what the win is, but we do know that Jesus wants us to participate. And that's what God is somewhat asking you and I to do today. To trust him, to follow him, to obey him, but to be part of the bigger picture of the plan. To remember where we're going and what's coming so we don't get sidetracked. Now I can see the two disciples walking into the village, right? Can you imagine the conversation on the way? Really think this is going down? He just says there's a cult there, he's gonna be there? Well, yeah, but did you see him? He raised Lazarus from the dead. I figure if he can do that, he can make a, a little cult appear. They walk in, boom, there's the cult. Well, what do we do? Just started tying it, right? Now, if I was one of the disciples, I probably would have messed it up. Because I would have walked up and I've been untying this, and someone walked over, I would have been like, oh, excuse me. Oh, this is your cult. I'm sorry, I mistook it. I thought it was my cult. Sorry about that, right? Can you see him kind of going through this process? Because they're untying this cult, they're not asking permission, and all of a sudden someone's gonna come over and be like, hey, what are you doing? That's not yours. Isn't that an odd predicament to be in? That's the faith moment. Has God ever asked you to do something uneasy, difficult? Something that didn't fit into your perfect little box of how your life is going to be. And it puts you in a very peculiar situation, right? You know what we see in this story? Same thing we see in salvation. The same thing that we see when we're faced with temptation. That God always provides what? A way out, a way of escape. God always provides that safety net. These guys are untying a colt. 
obviously someone does walk up and questions them, and what do they say? They said, the Lord has need of it. And when he's done, he'll send it back. And here's the crazy, beautiful, funny part of the story. I can just see they're in time to cult. Someone comes up a little angry, probably for me, some six foot, 300 pound, muscle bound guy going, hey, what are you doing with my colt? That's not yours. And I'd be like, the Lord has need of it and he'll send it back when he's done with it. And this guy goes, okay, go ahead. Serious? Where does this kind of stuff happen? I mean, we always dream of that, right? If we walk in some place and just do something like, oh yeah, you go right ahead, right? But usually it's the opposite, isn't it? Jesus always provides that way of escape, that way to get through it safely if we just obey. If we just follow his commands, no matter how weird it may seem, when we obey Jesus, he's like, I'll take care of it, just as he does here. You see all these subtle little nuances in here that are just so impacting for our lives? If God asks you to do something out of your comfort zone, out of the way you pictured it, if you just obey him, he's going to provide that way out and that safety net. So the disciples bring the colt to Jesus, and they start doing something that was culturally tradition there. They start laying their coats down on the floor, on the path, for Jesus to walk over riding this colt coming in. Now that's not a cultural thing for us to do. I mean, you don't see, you and I don't go out too often and just start laying our shirt or our, our coat down in front of somebody so they can drive over it, right? In fact, you don't even see too many men opening doors anymore for women or the old thing they used to do were real chivalrous where the gal had her nylons on and her open-toed shoes and the, the chivalrous man would come out and put his coat down on the puddle so she wouldn't get her little toesies wet. You don't see that happen anymore, right? But what the people were doing here is this was a sign that someone is coming in that's important. This was like rolling out the red carpet. And if you didn't have a lot of a coat or something to lay down, you know what you did? You went out and somewhere and you got palm branches and stuff and you laid down. This was like a parade because you were announcing to everybody, hey, something really big and cool is going on here. We're rolling out the palm carpet, right? We're rolling out the red carpet. And so Jesus gets on this colt and rides this colt in, which if you've ever tried to ride an unbroken horse, the miracle here is he doesn't get bucked off, right? That's one miracle. And then he rides this colt in. Everyone's laying down their clothing or palm branches from all the way, coming into Jerusalem. And you can see the people in Jerusalem, this mass of 110,000 people start to see something that's going on and word begins to spread. And as word begins to spread, something else begins to happen because they begin to think, maybe this is the king that is going to save us from our captivity. Remember Egypt, Passover, several thousand years earlier, Jesus saved them from their slavery, their captivity, and brought them out into freedom. And here, God's going to do it now from the Roman government. He's going to save us from our captivity. And the parade moves along the way. And as more and more people gather, more and more people get in the groove, and they start coming out of the city 
onto the road and laying their stuff down in homage of the new come, coming king, right? Can you picture this? And Jesus is coming in and excitement is beginning to build. Now, anybody ever go to like a play or concert or some big event where all of a sudden people start getting excited and start yelling? And you ever have that sense of peer pressure on your life where you start doing what they're doing, right? Because you want to be with the end group, right? You want to be with the cool kids. You want to be with the action of what's going on, you know? You want to be the one you know, holding up your lighter in a concert because everybody else is, right? Now it's your, now it's your phone because that's cool. That peer pressure is starting to impact here. And as the people hear the people coming in and they can hear them coming in because what are the what's the parade doing coming into the city they're not just laying down palm branches and clothing they start shouting what hosanna hosanna to the king hosanna in the highest and they're shouting this and this parade is growing so they come out and they want to be part of what's going on peer pressure can be good can't it I mean, here's the crazy thing. If you're really excited about coming to church, maybe somebody else might be. What an odd thing, right? But it could go the other way. Because if you and I are so easily influenced by others in a positive way, what's the opposite side of that? We can be just as easily influenced in a negative way. Now, as we wrap this up, here's what happens in Holy Week. This big parade comes in with all these amazing things, these little moments of ministry and practical application that Jesus is giving us in this simple little one-paragraph example of the Bible. And the peer pressure is growing. The people are crying, Hosanna. The triumphant king that is going to save them is coming into Jerusalem at this Passover. This is the big one. But then as the crowd comes in, somebody else begins to overtake the shouting through the week. And instead of the triumphant shouting of Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, which means save us, save us now, what's the verbiage that is suddenly being chanted later in the week? Crucify, crucify. And as these people are planted in the crowd to cry crucify, what does the crowd start to do because of peer pressure? They begin to cry crucify as well. And in fact, the crowd is so influenced by these people planted in the crowd because of peer pressure that they choose to murder a thief. Or excuse me, they choose to let a thief go and murder the Son of God. Exactly opposite of what should have happened. They crucify the innocent one and they allow a guilty person to go free. Here's the final message of this short series as we, series of messages within this little one paragraph of the gospel. We can be such fickle people, can't we? I mean, even think about church sometimes. Sometimes we come and we're totally stoked and we leave here and something happens and within 
30 minutes, we're down in the dumps. Boom, we can change that fast. Part of the message of Palm Sunday is to grow in Christ to not be fickle. To stand firm in Christ, as the Bible says. Stand firm. Not to be like the waves tossed back and forth. Up one minute, down another. Up another minute, down another. But we see that even with the dedicated around Jesus in Palm Sunday as we apply this to our lives and we realize that we are just like them and have room to grow. Wasn't it true that the whole crowd fell away from Jesus except for a handful of people? And they went from crying Hosanna to crying crucify within less than just a few days? Wasn't it true that Jesus was frustrated with some of his disciples because he said, I want you to do a simple thing. I just want you to stay here and pray. And they took that Sabbath rest and slept instead, right? When Jesus needed them most, they bailed on him. Wasn't it true that one disciple sold Jesus out because Jesus, he realized Jesus wasn't going the same direction as he was? So he's like, well, I'll go my way and just leave you behind and I'll make a profit off of it too. Wasn't it true that another disciple denied Jesus in this week? Not once, not twice, but three times within a span of less than 12 hours? When he had told Jesus that he would do anything and die for him? Wasn't it true that a disciple turned to violence with a sword and cut off a person's ear instead of going the way of peace that Jesus had been teaching. All this happened in a week. Mountaintop experience to Death Valley. And then where do we go from here, right? The message is we can be so easily influenced by circumstance, by people, by personal thoughts and expectations, that we go from here to here if we don't remember here, right? That's the big message of Palm Sunday. That in essence, I think God is trying to say, don't get distracted. Remember, remember, remember. Celebrate and remember. Look to God and remember, remember your salvation. Remember that you don't get influenced by all around you and go from here to here. As we prepare for Easter, let us remember that we have to deal with our weaknesses, don't we? And one of our weaknesses when it comes to peer pressure is probably one of the strongest weaknesses that we have. And that's the desire, the wanting, the need to be accepted and appreciated. Right? We'll do almost anything for those two words. To be accepted and appreciated, I mean, you think of in high school, the kids in the rough crowd maybe you were the kid in the rough crowd but I mean they would take negative praise instead of no praise at all well at least I'm with them and they they take me for who I am they accept me right we all know that feeling we've all been there ourselves 
well, you don't take care of me, but they love me, right? Acceptance and appreciation. That said, let us remember that we are already unconditionally accepted and appreciated and loved and blessed by God. We don't need the acceptance and appreciation of others because when you have God that accepts you and appreciates you unconditionally, why do we settle for so much less? Why do we buy into that peer pressure and think we have to have that too? Christians, if you've got God's hand of favor upon you, and if you have salvation, the only begotten Son of Jesus Christ, His hand of favor is upon you. He's preparing a place for you now. He will come back for you, just like Zechariah. He will keep His word. And He loves and appreciates you. Message for Easter, isn't it? Let the acceptance of God be the prevailing remembrance of your life and don't settle for less. Don't shortchange yourself and follow the peer pressure. Let's celebrate Easter and all the fullness of God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the amazing stories in just one paragraph of your word that as we dig into it, there's so much to pull out and to apply to our lives. But Lord, we pray most of all, we would get the big message the big picture that we don't need to be fickle, we don't need to be accepted by others because we're already appreciated and accepted by you. For who we are without doing anything or changing anything, that God, you love us unconditionally and have forgiven us and take us in wholeheartedly just the way we are. And that in itself is amazing. Let us focus this week on that fact when our world goes upside down and sideways and circumstances change, let us remember our place in you and your love for us that we would not be tossed back and forth like the waves. May we give you glory in growing in you. In Jesus' name.